Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met yet, I would love if you would come up to me and introduce yourself to me after the service. If you're joining us online, just want to thank you for taking the time to be a part of our service here as well. Uh, Brenda did the announcements earlier, and she mentioned several things that are happening in the next couple of weeks. A couple other exciting things that I get to announce is that next week we are bringing a couple of people into membership which is really exciting. And if you've been thinking about membership and just, you know, this is your church, you love this place, you serve here, but you just want to make it official, we just encourage you to become a member. And uh, if you would like to do that, come talk to me after the service, or you can grab one of the applications from the informa information booth at the back of the foyer. You can do that. And then the next Sunday, we're celebrating another public declaration of faith with a baptism that's happening on the 25th. So that's really exciting. And, you know, the tank's already going to be full. So, and we don't, we want to conserve the water. So if you've been thinking about baptism, now is the time. So you can do the same thing. You can come talk to me after the service, or you can grab one of the applications that are back at the welcome booth. And um, yeah, we'd love to chat with you about either membership or baptism. Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Genesis called the Origin Series. And this morning we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. And as you're grabbing those, I just let me pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you so much for just all the ways that we've already been encouraged and blessed this morning. I just thank you for the worship team and just the palpable joy that they had leading us in worship and giving you our praise and thanks because you are such a good and gracious God. And you deserve all of our worship and everything we can offer you. Thank you so much for Randy's prayer and just for encouraging us and asking you to help us in the way of godliness. And thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us and that you will finish your work in us to the day of completion. And we just pray right now, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have a question for you. Have you ever had something go wrong because you didn't listen to another person? Something went wrong because you didn't listen. I think that's a pain that all of us know, and probably I know that pain far too well, far too often. I can remember a time a couple years ago where I was doing a little maintenance on one of my bicycles. It was something that I had done several times before. I was installing a set of pedals onto a bike because you need pedals in order to make the bike go around. And I had done this many times before, but I pulled out my phone and a YouTube video just to give myself a little refresher. But the problem is I didn't pay too much attention. I totally skipped over the first few steps, the precautions, because I didn't think I needed those because, well, I'd done this before. And I ended up stripping the threading on the crank arm that the pedal attaches to. Ouch. If only I had paid attention, if only I had listened up, I could have avoided that painful event. Instead, I just forged ahead thinking that I already knew best and it ended up costing me both more time and money. 
And we see something similar taking place in the story that we're going to read from Genesis chapter 4, where Adam and Eve's firstborn Cain is being cautioned to pay attention to what God is saying in order to steer clear of trouble, to avoid significant pain. And the message is the same for you and I today, that if we want help with sin, then we need to listen up. Let's read from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits from the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and we saw how sin began in that chapter to destroy the four harmonious relationships that humanity needs in order to thrive, in order for us to live the good life that we all long for. Those relationships are with creation, with ourselves, with others, and of course, with God. But Genesis 3 not only shows us what a big deal sin is, it also shows us how God's grace is way bigger. In this chapter, things go from bad to worse for humanity. This is a very sad story where the sin that people commit, it gets darker. Its impact is bigger. And yet God is still in the midst of it all. He is trying to help people. He is continuing to show mercy and grace. The passage introduces us to Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons. 
Both Cain and Abel were farmers. Abel, he worked with the flocks, and Cain, he worked in the garden. And both of these are good jobs. In verse 3 and 4, we see the brothers each bring an offering to God from their work. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought an offering, fat portions, from some of his firstborn flock. Then it says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Why does God do that? Is he simply just playing favorites? There doesn't appear to be a clear indication from the text why God looks with favor on one brother's offering and not the other. Perhaps God favors barbecue over fruit salad. Some Bible scholars have suggested that it was because Abel's offering was better. It says, fast, fat portions from the firstborn of the flock. Maybe insinuating that Cain's fruit was perhaps maybe not at its best. Maybe it was overripened. However, the text doesn't say that Cain's offering was bad or that Abel's was better. In fact, in the original language, both are suggested to be completely acceptable offerings. I don't think it actually had anything to do with the type of offering at all. Rather, I think God found, ex- found one acceptable offering over the other, and it had everything to do with the attitude of the person who was bringing it. Notice the passage does not say that the Lord just looked upon just the offering. Rather, it says that the Lord looked upon the person giving the offering. He found favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, the Lord did not look with favor. You see, there was something about the giver of the offering and not just the offering itself. It was about each of their attitudes towards God and worshiping him that made what they were bringing to God either acceptable to him or unacceptable. And this is super important for us to understand too because bringing offerings to God is still something that Christians do today. We may no longer bring animals or fruit as our offerings. It's more likely that we bring a portion of our salary or we offer up some of our time or our talents in a variety of ways that we serve God. Or like we've already done this morning, we raise our voices and we offer him our praise through song. And we bring these things, these offerings to God because we know that we are to worship God for how kind he is to us for his generosity towards us, and because bringing him our offerings demonstrates to God and to this world that we love and trust him for our security. Bringing our offerings to God demonstrates to him and to the world that we love God and we trust him for our security. Not our jobs, not our financial planning, we trust him. Now, I know that talking about offerings and money can be very uncomfortable. It's even unfashionable for some Christians who would rather that we not mention it. But giving our offerings to God is worship. And though worship may be uncomfortable and worship is often difficult, 
It is not something that we should be embarrassed to do or talk about. And if I'm correct, that Cain and Abel's offerings are the first time people worshiping God is mentioned in the Bible, perhaps that's, that makes this account the very first church service. But something we cannot overlook from this text is that central to worshiping God are people bringing him their offerings. Central to worshiping God is people bringing God their offerings. But the acceptability of the offering we bring has nothing to do with what or how much we offer God. Rather, it has everything to do with our attitude. I'll say that again. The acceptability of the offerings we bring to God often has nothing to do with what or how much we bring. Rather, their acceptability has everything to do with our attitudes. For example, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 21 where Jesus is hanging out in the temple and he's watching many things, but one of the things he's seeing is all these rich folk who are putting their offerings into the temple treasury. And then one little old lady catches Jesus' eye. She's a widow. And she slips in what Luke says are two very small copper coins. And this stirs Jesus. He arouses the disciples and he says, did you see that? She put in more than everybody else. Did she? Not an actual money, but there was something in her attitude that God saw that caught his attention, which made her offering bigger and more acceptable than the rest. This widow's offering showed her gratitude, dependence, and trust in the Lord. And that is the attitude Jesus is looking for from worshipers. Gratitude, dependence, and trust in God. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under a sense of compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. In Hosea 6, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, these scriptures tell us that the attitude of the worshiper towards both God and our fellow human being is far more important than the actual offerings that we bring. And so I think Abel's offering was favored because his attitude was right towards the Lord's and Cain's offering was rejected because of his attitude. And I think the rest of this passage bears that out. If Cain's attitude was right, but it was just God rejected his offering because it wasn't good enough or he brought the wrong thing, I think then Cain's response would have been sadness and not anger. Verse 5 says he got angry. But if pleasing God were, was his, his goal, if pleasing God was just about offering the right thing, I think Cain would have quickly done whatever he could have to make things right. Instead, he is just angry. But who is he angry with? Again, the text doesn't tell us. He could be angry with God or Abel. He could be angry with himself. 
However, as the story plays out, it seems it's obvious that Cain is angry with God for not receiving his offering, but also angry with his brother because Abel's offering was acceptable and his attitude correct. But his anger is revealing to us. It shows us that Cain is not bringing his offering to God in order to glorify God as he deserves or to demonstrate his own love and thankfulness to God. Rather, it seems Cain is bringing his offering to receive whatever recognition that he can get out of it for himself or because he feels he has to. It's a compulsion. It's an obligation. In fact, this is just what his name, Cain, means. Cain means to acquire, to get, or possess. He's doing this so that he can get whatever he can out of it. He's angry, not because what he had to give wasn't accepted, but because he didn't get what he had hoped for or what he thought he deserved in exchange for his offering. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, God, I have worshipped you and followed you, and yet you didn't give me the life that I had hoped for. God, I served you, and yet I didn't get the spouse or the children that I hoped. God, I went to Bible college in order to be a pastor, and I got cancer. I think often many of us feel the same way. What's incredible is that God sees all of this. He sees Cain's anger and frustration. God sees into Cain's heart and knows that Cain's attitude, it's not correct. But rather than get angry with Cain, God attempts to help him. He says, it says in verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I love how the Lord doesn't just call Cain out. Rather, he begins with these three questions. It's not as if God doesn't already know the answer to these questions, but by starting with questions, he is allowing Cain the chance to confess his failure, to confess why he's feeling so hard done by, right? He's giving Cain an opportunity. This is a grace of God. This is a tact that many of us need to learn to use in our own disagreements and conflicts with others. I know I need to do better at this myself. I can often come in to a situation feeling like I already know the answers to my questions, so rather I come in with accusations. But even if we are correct about our assumptions, and there is no doubt that God already knew the answer to his questions, we would do better to take a posture of curiosity which provides the other person with an opportunity rather than feeling threatened or having to be defensive because they feel attacked. But there is an answer to God's last question there. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And the answer is, of course you will. Of course you will be accepted. You see, God is not vindictive, and he does not play favorites. In Romans 2, 
Paul writes, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Not only does he not show favoritism, but God also offers us help. He says to Cain in verse 7, If you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So God's help in this case comes through a warning. He sees the anger in Cain's heart. He sees Cain's selfish, self-centered attitude, and he tells him how to overcome and to avoid the perilous path. His anger is going to lead him down. God wants to help Cain with his sin, and he is telling Cain, listen up. The way that God describes sin in verse 7, though, crouching at your door, desiring to have you, that's frightening. It's almost as if sin is alive, like it's a violent animal, or it's it's an evil power that is out to get us, to destroy us. And you know what? In many ways, that is a very fair description. The Bible says that sin isn't just some inert, inanimate thing. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. If our sin rules over us, that means that they can have, it can have power over us. James 1 says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The Bible describes sin as a power that is alive because it originates inside you and I. And we're alive. James says that sin is born out of desires that each of us has. Now, some of our desires are good and right, but many of our desires are not good. Many of our desires are bad and evil. They are self-centered. They go against the will and design of God, and they don't serve God or help others. They are all about our own wants and our own aspirations. They are inherently selfish. Now, already in this sermon, I have mentioned money, and now I'm talking about sin, and I can just see the YouTube ratings just plummeting, and maybe even the ratings inside the room plummeting too, right? People don't like talking about sin. Even some people may have a hard time with the statement I just made about some of our desires being evil or sinful and bad. They might suggest to me that I use kinder words like no, no, they're just misguided, or they're not the best. But the reason the Bible speaks so boldly about sin and our our proclivity towards self-centeredness is because of how severe the consequences of sin are. God intervenes in Cain's life because he sees that sin wants to have its way with Cain, and sin desires his destruction. It desires death. As James says, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. 
James goes on to tell us that our selfish desires tempt us to find satisfaction or fulfillment by coming up with a plan, conceiving. That's when sin happens. Rather than ignoring it or fleeing from temptation, our sinful desires, we give in to them. We give life to them. And we're so good at this too. All of these steps, they can just happen in a blink of an eye. Like when someone is annoying to me, I can have this desire to hurt them or want to shut them up. And so I can instantly think of something I can say to them. I conceive of how to satisfy my desire. And then, boom, I sin because I say it. There it is. I've given birth to sin. Rather than bite my tongue, ignore them, consider their feelings, I say what comes to my mind, I get what I wanted, but in the end, it only causes more hurt, more brokenness and destruction, sin giving birth to death. And ironically, throughout the whole scenario I just described, I believe the whole time I'm in charge. Yeah, I'm the boss. But in the moment that I gave way to sin, I let it take charge of me. And that's what happens every time you and I give in to selfish desires. We are no longer taking the lead in our lives. Rather, we are allowing sin to rule over us. Exactly what God tells Cain, sin wants to do to him. One of the greatest desires that each human has is for freedom. And our culture has defined freedom as doing whatever we want. And probably the greatest sin we can commit in our society is telling someone that they should limit their freedom or deny themselves what they want because those desires are bad and wrong. It's ironic and sad because rather than freedom, we have actually become captives. Captives to our desires. We are not free to do what we want. We are instead enslaved to our desires, our wants. But the Bible has a very different, it puts a very different emphasis on freedom from our Western culture. We believe that freedom is having the right to do whatever we want, to say yes to anything, while the Bible's emphasis of freedom is that we now are able to say no Not just to other people, but we can say no to ourselves. We can deny ourselves, right? Because we have been released from captivity, liberated from our evil desires. We are set free from slavery to sin. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We can say no. And the last thing that you and I should ever do with our newfound freedom is for us to return to being captive to our selfish desires. 1 Peter 2, 16 says, live as free people. Oh, I like that. But he goes on to say, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So we are to let someone rule over us. But it's not myself. It's not my desires. Galatians 5, Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Sounds good. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Oh, now I get to use my freedom to submit to you. 
In this story, Cain becomes captive to sin. He allows it to take charge over him. Rather than listen to God and get help with his sin, Cain ignores God, listens to his own desires. He does what he wants, and it's the same sin his parents committed a chapter earlier. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve took their lives into their own hands. Rather than trusting their creator, they chose to do things their way. They decided to live independent of God, and each time it results in death. In Cain's story, it's the death of his brother Abel, whom he lures into a field and kills. Now, obviously, that is terrible for Abel, It's devastating for their parents, Adam and Eve. But Cain's actions don't only result in awful consequences for them, but things are much worse now for Cain as well. There's no doubt that Cain thought by giving into his desire and doing what he wanted, it would make his life better. And perhaps for a few brief moments after he killed his brother in the field, he felt like it did. But that was before it was discovered and before he realized the consequences for his actions. I remember I was about mm, 11 or 12 years old, walking into my parents' bedroom and seeing a nice crisp $5 bill on my parents' dresser. And I saw it and I took it and I went to the local comic shop because I had this Batman comic book that I had been coveting for a while. And I bought that Batman comic book, and I couldn't wait to get home and to savor the pages of that comic. And my dad happened to show up at the comic book store, offering my brother and I a ride home. And as soon as we got into the car, he divulged that mom and him had discovered some money taken from the top of their dresser. Well, now I have to say, I was no longer looking forward to getting home and reading that comic. That's always the case with sin, isn't it? It feels good for a moment until we have to face the consequences for our actions. Sorry, Dad. And when Cain hears his consequences, he cannot take it. Genesis 4, 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Then the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Again, we see God coming to Cain, asking questions rather than making accusations. Where is your brother? Another opportunity for Cain to confess. God is showing him mercy again. Cain responds with a lie. I don't know. And then the classic line, am I my brother's keeper? Friends, I have heard Christians use this same phrase inferring that they are not responsible for another person's well-being. 
I have to say, I find it a little mind-blowing and strange that we are deferring to Cain for how to care for other people. By the way, what is the answer to that question? Am I my brother's keeper? Of course we are. That's what this whole thing is about. We are one another's keeper. The Lord reveals to Cain that he knows what he has done. And he tells him the consequences. And I find his response very interesting, don't you? He takes no responsibility for his actions. He doesn't even apologize or show any remorse over the terrible pain that he has caused Abel, their parents, or the Lord. He just feels sorry for himself. And once again, Cain has put Cain at the center. And he also assumes things about his consequences that the Lord never said. Cain says he will be hidden from God's presence and that whoever finds him will kill him. But God didn't say either of these things would happen to him. But again, it just goes to show how all he can think about is himself. God shows Cain incredible grace and mercy in this moment again. First, he shows him mercy when God doesn't instantly kill Cain for what he has done. In Deuteronomy 19, it specifies that a guilty murderer is one who rises up against a neighbor and slays them. Exactly what Cain has done. And the punishment for this crime is the death sentence. And yet, in this passage, Cain is guilty and deserves death. And yet, rather than kill him, God promises to protect him. God also never says he would leave Cain. Romans 8 tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And then in Psalm 139, it's this beautiful poem about that God's presence is everywhere we go, that there's nowhere we can run to or hide from where God's present presence isn't there with us. But look at this passage. Who does the leaving? Verse 16. Cain went out of the Lord's presence. See, God never leaves us. But Cain demonstrates that we are the ones who often try to avoid God, particularly when we feel ashamed after sinning. It is us who run and hide from him, just like his parents did a chapter before. When they'd taken the fruit from the tree they were not supposed to take from, they heard God walking through the garden, and the first thing that they did was hide. And this is exactly what sin wants from us. Sin wants to have us all to itself. It wants us to feel like we can no longer turn to God, that we cannot be forgiven or restored, that we can't be in God's presence. Sin causes us to feel shame. It tells us the lie, you know, and we, we either unconsciously or consciously believe that we need to live right for a while before we can come back to God. Have you ever felt that way? Where you have done a sin and you're just like, oh God, I can't believe I've done that. And then rather to return to him in intimacy and confession and receive his forgiveness, we just feel like, I got to make things right. I got to live right for a while. I got to be pure and holy for a bit before I can come back 
into God's presence. But here's the thing. We cannot be good or make things right without coming to God first. We cannot make our relationship right without confessing. And we cannot be good without receiving his forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us for our sins. Thank you, God. And he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is just simply broken relationships. He will, he, it's another way of saying broken relationships and that God wants to heal us from all those broken relationships, especially our relationship with him. He loves us. God wanted to heal Cain from his broken relationships, but Cain ran away from God, so Cain couldn't have his sins forgiven. He couldn't have his broken relationship with God or his parents restored because he ran. But God did not want Cain to run. He wanted him to stay. He wanted him to listen. To listen to him so that Cain wouldn't have ruined his life and wouldn't have ruined Abel's. He wanted Cain to listen up because he was still willing to be with Cain, to watch over and protect him, listen to God rather than run from him because God is willing to show mercy, willing to restore, willing to forgive. That's what God wanted to do for Cain. And that's what God wants to do for every one of us. We're all tempted to sin. And inevitably, we're all going to make selfish choices that hurt other people and disappoint the Lord. But if we come to God rather than run from God, he will help us. Now, in all probability, we will still probably have to face some consequences for our actions. That's just the way this world is designed to work. However, we can be forgiven. We can have our relationships mended. We just need to stop going our own way, come to God, and listen up. I love the way that the book of Hebrews just exalts Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, it talks about how we receive God's forgiveness obtained through Christ's death on the cross by coming to the Father. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place where the Father is, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is Christ's body, and since we have this great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having a, our bodies washed with pure water. What an invitation. God's great desire for us to listen to him is so that we can hear the greatest news ever told, and that is he loves us, he forgives us, and he wants to restore us. This message, this story here, also has a, another very important point to it. It demonstrates how God is there for us to give us help before we ever get into trouble with sin. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, the temptations in your life, they're no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Do you see what that's saying? Just like God spoke to Cain and warned him before he killed Abel, 1 Corinthians 10 says that God is available to us to show us a way out of our temptation. So we do not have to sin. We have a choice. We can choose to go it our own way, or if we want help, we can listen to God, and he promises his help will be available to us. Now, we're never going to get this perfect in our lifetime, Each of us is going to continue to struggle with temptation. We're going to give in to sin. But we can get better at denying those those evil desires that the Bible calls the flesh. And we can become more faithful and more fruitful and obedient to the Lord. But we do need to practice listening to him. And many of us have been putting these practices uh, in place. We've had them in place for years and years. These a couple of them come down to spending time with God in prayer and also reading the scriptures. And these practices, they help us to resist temptation because they allow God's voice to grow louder in our lives so that his voice is easier to hear. His direction is easier to recognize. But also these practices help drown out the competing voices that are in our lives. And there's a lot of competing voices in our lives that are opposed to obedience to God. And they tempt us to give in to temptation. And some of those voices are from the outside, but there's a major one from within each of us. Paul writes in Galatians 5, he says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Ooh, that's a line. You're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. And a couple of the ways we keep in step with the Spirit is by giving God opportunity to speak to us in prayer, in silence and meditation, and by reading the Scriptures. And we do not do it alone. We also do it within the community of Christ together. We can't do it alone. We all need the help of other faithful Christians in our lives whom we can trust, who we're able to be vulnerable with, who we can share our struggles with. Having a community like this, it is essential for our Christian walk. Not only does it help you to face your struggles and overcome temptation because we can receive encouragement from other people or we can receive help from those who've, ex- who've experienced similar things that we face, but it's within the context of Christian community that we receive healing, and forgiveness. Again, James says to us, confess your sins to each other 
not just to God. Confess them to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that's hard to do, to confess your sins to another person. But there's so much power and healing in that. Above all, we need to remember that when we do fail and we do give in to sin, and we all will, that is when we need to come to God and not run from him like Cain did or like I'm tempted to at times. Unlike Cain, who was not his brother's keeper, God shows us through this story, but especially in the life of his son Jesus, that he is our keeper and he will always be our keeper. He will continue to look out for your well-being but we need to come to him, trust him, that he loves and accepts us, and that when we confess what we have done, that he will be faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. God will keep speaking to us. He will keep offering us help with sin. We just need to listen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Would you stand with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we were so grateful for your love and your mercy and kindness towards us. Thank you that you looked down upon us as your children, children whom you longed to run into your arms, who you want to forgive and restore. Forgive us for when we flee. Forgive us for when we don't have the, the right picture of you, God, when we're scared of your anger. I just pray, Lord, that you would remind us again and again about your loving compassion for us. And I pray that for each one of us here, we all struggle with sin, Lord, that we would take you at your word and that we would come to you and we would receive your forgiveness, that we would find a trustworthy friend and be able to confess to them and receive the encouragement and the help and the healing that you promised to give us. Thank you that you are true and faithful to your word. We love you so much. Thank you that you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.